your competition as a $10 million SaaS company is almost certainly not the $8 million SaaS company next to you or the $12 million SaaS company on the other side of you. Though you three in your little environment need to be worried about a large SaaS company in an adjacent marketplace deciding that they just have to add this product. Hi, and welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaSlock. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and on this week's episode, I talk with Rory O'Driscoll, a partner of Scale Venture Partners, about things SaaS entrepreneurs have to be cautious about when it comes to the industry as a whole. Originally from Ireland, Rory moved to California 28 years ago. For 25 of those, he's been investing in enterprise software with Scale Venture Partners and its predecessor. In that time, he's learned a lot of things about the world of venture funding, starting with the fact of just how deceivingly easy all of it seems how difficult it is to make the right decisions about entrepreneurs and their companies and have the conviction to see them through the tough times. Rory's learned to count his blessings and remember that a lot of successful bets he's made have a lot to do with luck, that humbleness is what keeps him cautious, even in the best of times for SaaS. And in this interview, he shares some of the things that he wants every SaaS entrepreneur to be aware of. Listen on to hear how worrisome is the market saturation in SaaS, It's totally worrisome. I always tell our investors, I don't worry as much about valuation as I worry about saturation and competition. Because the beauty of the SaaS model, if you're growing at 30% and you can continue to grow, then in two years, you know, you can earn yourself out of a big hole. And we've seen that over and over again. Valuation on its own is not terrifying. Market saturation is utterly terrifying. Now, other companies are dealing with that issue. If I was running Salesforce, the sales cloud, the quickest way to add $200 million in revenue next year is to take that 2 or $3 billion business, find the best add-on product, maybe it's something in sales enablement, buy a simple product and just jam it through the channel. And I think you're going to see that behavior and that kind of saturation and competition is probably the biggest thing we worry about. How to become recession-proof. So I think the number one thing you need to do is make sure in the upturn that your product it can start with a nice-to-have, but it's got to become a must-have. And that's a very good trick, right? It's Because, you know, the reality is you frequently start with a nice-to-have. That, that's okay. The first thing you need to do is get integrated into business processes. If you're integrated into two or three other systems, no one ever churns you because it just becomes this kind of cascading pain in the butt to replace you in three other systems and figure out what to do. Rory O'Driscoll is returning to Sastock in October in Dublin. Uh, October the 14th to the 16th. Uh, he'll be joined alongside many great speakers, such as Claire Hughes-Johnson, CEO at Stripe, Leela Srinivasan, CMO at SurveyMonkey, Catherine Petralia, CEO at Cabbage, and Girish Mathabutham, CEO at Freshworks. They'll all be giving great content, tactical, practical frameworks, lessons in how to get traction, grow, and scale your SaaS business. Join them and 4,000 other SaaS founders, execs, and roughly about 400 VCs in Dublin for a great week of SaaS festivities, learning, business dealing, venture raising, uh, all the above. Uh, Grab a ticket now at the best possible price at sasdoc.com. Now on the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, Rory O'Driscoll, partner at Scale Venture Partners. Welcome, Rory. Thank you. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. 
No, no, good to have you on the podcast for the first time. And we were just saying it's been about two years since we spoke as you were at SASDOC 17. Yep. Key- keynoting then, and we'll be back returning to Dublin in October 15th and 16th. I think you're coming back, right? Yeah. Looking forward to that. Rory, for those that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. I'm a partner here at Scale Venture Partners. I've been at Scale and its predecessor for actually 25 years now doing venture. I focus primarily on kind of enterprise software, so lots of SaaS, increasingly lots of AI. That's it. You've been in venture, is it 24, 25 years now? I'm just checking, 25 plus years now, just over 25 years stunning. Actually, yeah, just a little over 25 years. What have you learned? It's a big question, I guess. It is a big question. I'd like to think I've learned something. Um, Lots of things. One is it's a hard business. I mean, it looks easy from the outside and all the like, the little parts of the business are all fun. You know, you you go to conferences, you go to board meetings, you opine on a whole bunch of stuff. You actually don't have to graft that physically hard compared to, you know, the grind of an entrepreneur. But it's a really hard business because in the end, you got to be right. Uh, You got to pick the right deals and have the conviction to see them through tough times and hopefully make money. And then the second thing is you got to be a little lucky. There's a huge amount of timing in this. And we forget that sometimes at a time like this when we all think we're so smart, but I'm the same person I was in 2001 when I felt really dumb. The second thing is you got to be lucky because timing really matters here. And if you get the timing wrong, it just doesn't work out. I was, I feel smart today and I felt dumb in 2001 and I'm probably pretty much the same person. I think timing matters a lot more than we like to admit to ourselves. And then the third and last thing is you got to be humble because the truth is, you know, when you look at the entrepreneur does, I always say, you know, we're not the horse. We're not even the jockey. We're just a punter at the racetrack betting on horses. And the person who's doing the hard work is the person galloping around the track. And I think we always got to remember that it's the entrepreneur who does the work. It's the entrepreneur who makes a difference. Which are, uh, for our listeners then, which are some of the, the, the bets that you've made that have uh, come good? Which are the right deals? Which are the lucky ones? Sure. I mean, I think I was lucky enough to invest in Box very early on, on with Aaron. I was lucky enough to invest in DocuSign, which has obviously performed well, Omniture, Exact Target, a bunch of other kind of, frankly, great SaaS companies with great entrepreneurs over the years. It's early stage, right? It's early, early stage. I mean, after product market fit. So they have typically early revenues, a couple of million dollars in run rate revenues. So we're not underwriting the does the product work risk. But what we are underwriting is building successful go-to-markets, hence the name kind of scale venture partners. We're all about helping our companies scale from a million, two million dollars to, you know, in the case of DocuSign, almost a billion now, uh, Box, 700 million, a bunch of others like that. So the topic that we want to talk about today is that SaaS seems to be booming. You know, IPOs are back. We've had Zoom and Slack and uh, PageDuty and others. That everything looks great with SaaS at the moment. We want to talk about, without being negative, what could go wrong. Is this something you're happy to discuss and get some opinions about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here, kind of get all negative. But I think it's always good when things are going really well to step back and say what could go wrong and on what dimension can things go wrong and you know maybe the first thing to talk about is just you know valuations i think that you know the markets are very much priced for perfection i think you see it you know the median SaaS company is probably trading around 9.3 times run rate revenues kind of the long-term average is between five and six so that's a pretty healthy premium 
And it's fairly vulnerable. I mean, I think if you look at literally the Christmas period is, you know, you're all happily trading at nine times revenue in September. There's some talk of interest rates rising. And within two months, you're trading at six times revenue. And then kind of the Fed changes its mind and says, whoopsie, we're not raising interest rates. And lo and behold, within two months, you're back up to nine times again. It's kind of a little disconcerting that we in the Valley tend to think, oh, the financial markets, interest rates don't really impact our business. But that's a very graphic example of how something totally external, which is a perceived interest rate, really does impact the value of a high-growth company way more than we realize. So that would be an example of just a vulnerability. And that's not a performance issue. That's not a particular to SaaS issue. That's simply a reflection of when you're reaching for these kind of valuations, almost anything can impact them, and it can impact them very quickly. Do you think we'll ever see a return to like when Zenefits had a, like a 50x sort of revenue? And uh, I think maybe that was an outlying case. but I, I think it was an outlying case, but I think you will see some of that. I, you're seeing it today. I mean, Zoom, which is an amazing company, it's roughly 30 times, right? I think that if the median company is trading at nine times and it's growing at 30%, then the interesting question becomes, how do you value the companies that are growing faster? And in fact, that's probably a sub, this subject we spent most time thinking about, because by virtue of being in venture investing, you're not investing in the 30% revenue growth company. You kind of, that's where the public markets are investing. So as we always joke, if I give you the following facts, companies at 30% growth rate are trading at eight, nine times revenue. This company is growing at 200%. What has it worked? actually a very hard problem because, as we know, exponentials are extraordinarily hard to internalize. And what you tend to see is, especially in an optimistic time, if you can extrapolate that 200% growth to just two or three years, you can pay 30 times and you can pay 40 times. And what you're seeing right now is people, to some extent correctly, buying into this continued exponential growth that justifies laugh valuations. What about the next thing, sort of market saturation? So we're seeing SaaS for everything. And in, in, you know, in the MarTech space, there is what, like six, 7,000 MarTech SaaS applications. How worrisome is that? It's totally worrisome. I always tell our investors, I don't worry as much about valuation as I worry about saturation and competition. Because the beauty of the SaaS model, if you're growing at 30% and you can continue to grow, then in two years, you know, you can earn yourself out of a big hole. And we've seen that over and over again. Valuation on its own is not terrifying. Market saturation is utterly terrifying. Like it's a great example, MarTech. You know, we've been lucky enough as a firm. There have been about five or six SaaS outcomes above $2 billion in kind of MarTech. And we've been lucky enough to invest in three of them. Omniture in 04 with Josh James. Exact Target in 09. I think HubSpot in 09 with Brian Halligan. So three great outcomes. I foolishly passed on demand where I would have made it four great outcomes. But in every case, when we looked at those companies, the competitive environment was three or four competitors. I can still remember the Omniture competitive list. It was West Side Story, one other company of stature, right? Today, in those, and all those companies have gone public, have fought, in one case has been acquired by Salesforce and the other by Adobe. Today, you look at that same place and there's, as you say, there's a thousand plus companies in the MarTech stack. Right. So no matter how good you are, right, the, the, the dollars have just gotten sliced way more finely. And when I think back to those companies, 
And this kind of gets us, when I think back to the success pattern for Omniture and Exact Target and HubSpot, it dispels a comment that people often think, which is that they're actually, you know, these little companies are all in separate markets. Because around the time Omniture hit 200 million and the same with Exact Target, we started adding other products to our core product because the economics of software business are that distribution is expensive. And once you've acquired customers, the best way to make money and to optimize your model is to put more products through them. So what you see there is the behavior of, I remember in uh, Omniture, we acquired an A-B testing company. In Exact Target, we acquired a social media company, kind of a couple of mobile companies, all about adding additional products to our repertoire, right? HubSpot added CRM, brilliantly did a great job of that. And the thing about that is what it highlights is your competition as a $10 million SaaS company is almost certainly not the $8 million SaaS company next to you or the $12 million SaaS company on the other side of you. Though you three in your little environment need to be worried about a large SaaS company in an adjacent marketplace deciding that they just have to add this product. And I think especially when Salesforce has lofty growth targets, um, Adobe has lofty growth targets, you know, as these guys start coming up against the constraints of market size, they're going to start saying, let's add additional products. The quickest way, if I was running Salesforce, the sales cloud, the quickest way to add $200 million in revenue next year is to take that 2 or $3 billion business, find the best add-on product, maybe it's something in sales enablement, buy a simple product and just jam it through the channel. And I think you're going to see that behavior. And that kind of saturation and competition is probably the biggest thing we worry about. And what was the fourth company that you passed on, by the Demandware. way? Demandware. Don't remind Demandware. me. <laughs> and the, the, a very good friend of mine told me over and over again to do the deal, and I foolishly said no. Hate it. And um, moving swiftly on then, but if you're in a saturated market, you know, we're hearing a lot about like category creation. So, for instance, those that are good at marketing in a saturated market like Drift, right? They've come in, they've got a tool or a feature that is already, you know, out there with the likes of Intercom and whatever, and they've created a category called conversational marketing. Is, is that something, is it a playbook that only works for them or is that something that everybody should be looking at? Well, uh, not everybody can be unique by definition of the word unique, right? I think Drift have executed brilliantly. And, you know, my partner, Stacey, had talked to those guys, ex-HubSpot people, superb execution. As you say, they really have built something novel and something exciting and a good brand around it. I don't think everyone can do that, right? I just, you know, I think there's, I mean, how many new things do you think you can ingest at any one time as a marketer, Right. I think, you know, when you look at what Drift does, that's a thing. That's obviously the next thing that's going to be added to the stack. They've done a nice job adding it. But, again, that covers one of the 2,000-plus companies in the MarTech stack. And, again, I'm not trying to be wholly negative on marketing. I'm just the MarTech stack. We have it. We still have some deals in the space, and we like it. But it's just really hard with that kind of competitive environment to create differentiation. I mean, Drift did it, but not everyone can. Yeah, and, and Drift, obviously, they have David Council, Five Times Entrepreneur, right? So they're very good at the execution. SaaS is uh, very much about making the economics work. And I know that you've obviously spoken and written about that. You know, what are your observations around what companies can do to make their economics work if they're on a decline? Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, and I think that parts of the economic model in the last five years have been tougher and parts have been better. Right. I mean, I think that if you step back, you know, one is kind of the ability to add new customers has gotten harder and harder. And you see this in kind of any measure of sales efficiencies, rep productivities. When you get down in the weeds of the numbers, 
And in particular, the numbers are new customer ads. What you see is just getting increasingly expensive to add new customers, right? And you can see that in aggregate across the Wall Street comps, and you can see it in detail when you're on the board of individual companies. You know, conversely, the good news is that churn has stayed fairly low, right? The economy has been good. And the economy is one of the biggest drivers of churn. I mean, you know, you have idiosyncratic churn if your product is crap and you deserve to be churned. But macro level churn is driven by the number of companies that go out of business and probably more importantly, the number of companies that really clamp down on costs and just start looking at the marginal thing. And we haven't seen that environment for the last five or six years. I remember well being on the board of a public company in 2009 when that happened. And let me tell you, you think your SaaS revenue is guaranteed. Well, it ain't. When the CFO is firing people, literally taking headcount out of their company, it's very tempting to say, no, we'll keep my friend Joe in HR, and instead we'll get rid of that $100,000 a year SaaS subscription because we really don't need it. So I think churn is being the favorable part of the model for the last five or 10 years. And then the other thing is, overall, just the markets, by that I mean not the financial markets, but the, but the size of these markets has remained strong. So overall, the model has been pretty good in the last five years. I mean, I wouldn't say on average it's been bad. I'd say it's, it's had some negatives around sales execution and sales performance, but they've been more than swamped by the inherently good opportunity and by the fact that we've been in good economic times. So that was a bit of a ramble to your question is how do you respond then when it gets tough? Most importantly, and it's something you can't impact and you only realize it when it goes wrong, is you know, the cliche of are you a nice-to-have or a must-have? You know, a nice, I mean, a must-have. Very few financial accounting packages get churned out in the downturn. You know, no one says, oh, my God, it's 2009 all over again. This is the time I'm going to rip out my GL system because I want to save 100 grand. So NetSuite remains safe. Intact remains safe. Those kind of companies that are systems of record for core business processes remain safe. What gets attacked and what gets cut then is all the nice-to-haves, which – tend to do actually really well in the upturn because they're the new thing that you probably haven't added yet. And in the good times, you're like, yes, let's invest in employee messaging. Let's invest in important additional products. But then in a downturn, you see more pushback. So I think the number one thing you need to do is make sure in the upturn that your product, it can start with a nice to have, but it's got to become a must have. And that's a very good trick. Right, it's that because you know the reality is you frequently start with a nice to have. That, that's okay. The first thing you need to do is get integrated into business processes. If you're integrated into two or three other systems, no one ever churns you because it just becomes this kind of cascading pain in the butt to replace you in three other systems and figure out what to do. Then the second thing is morph your functionality into more important, more system of record type stuff. And I give HubSpot an A plus plus on this. I mean, they started with a very front-end search engine optimization tool, and now they've gone all the way to adding CRM for the small business. You don't rip out your CRM system, even in the downturn, right? So it's not fatal to start in a nice-to-have, but recognize you in a nice-to-have and make sure you evolve the product. The last thing to look at, sorry, is I think look at your customer base. In the Valley in particular, we're very prone to getting very excited about the fact that we're all selling to each other, right? And again, that's okay. Because tech companies are going to be the early adopters, right? But when, but when times get tough, Coca-Cola is going to make it true. Um, General Motors, not so much, given the last time. But ask yourself, is your customer base, how recession-proof is your customer base? 
and really kind of start thinking about that and swinging your effort towards marketing to those customers that might be harder to land, but are increasingly less likely to churn. Yeah, no, good points there. I think on the evolution of HubSpot and their product set and making it more difficult to rip out, you see other companies doing that, like Zendesk, for instance, at the moment, becoming a key platform for all business needs uh, at the moment, more than the support platform that it was uh, a few years ago. You spoke about artificial intelligence at SASDOC 17 uh, and the fact that it's still not delivering on its promises. What are your thoughts about that nearly two years later? I mean, I think it's definitely becoming more adopted in the enterprise. And I'd say it wasn't so much with not delivering on its promises. My comment was it's wildly delivering on the consumer side for a set of clear reasons around availability of data, acceptability of error. And at the time, two years ago, it wasn't delivering on the enterprise side, again, for a bunch of pretty tactical reasons in terms of what the technology can and can't do and what the enterprises need. And I made the point two years ago, almost none of the enterprise IPOs had a meaningful AI portion. And I'd say that's probably still the case today. I mean, if you look at PagerDuty, if you look at Fast, if you look at Zoom, none of them are fundamentally, quote, AI companies. But what you are saying, I'm sure all of them in different ways are leveraging AI. I know Zoom is doing an interesting job in terms of speech recognition around what they can do for web conferencing, I think. So there's all an element of AI creeping into those. But more interestingly for me as a venture investor, there are now earlier stage companies that are beyond the pre-revenue and are now kind of vaulting into that $5, 10 $20 million revenue stage where AI is not just a, a component of the value, but is the core enabling part of their value proposition for customers. So I think we're definitely further on the journey. I'm you know, frankly super glad about the investments we've made in the space and we continue to look at more. So it's happening. It's happening more slowly than the hype masters would say, but it's happening. We're several months to SASDOC 19. Have you thought about what you're going to keynote on this year? I've barely thought about what I was going to talk to you on this morning until half an hour ago. So the idea of preparing for October, wow, <laughs> you know, that would be a level of organization so far beyond my capability that, alas, it will not happen. Um, but it's a good forcing, all joking aside. I, I, one of the reasons I like doing this is it just makes you think. And, you know, if you step back and say, look, I'm looking forward to coming. I love speaking to entrepreneurs. And I always figure it's your job to try and deliver some value because, you know, you're taking their time. Frankly, you want them to think of you when they want to raise money. And the best way to do that is to make sure you've got something to say that's of interest to them. So they at least get up and don't just go, oh, my God, I just texted for 20 minutes because the guy said nothing and blathered on. So I will put my thinking cap on over the summer and try and come up with something. Good stuff. And hopefully you meet some exciting startups along the way. The final question, Rory, we always like to ask our guests how they stay healthy and sane on their journey. What is your way? I'm not sure I'm either, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm unhealthy. You know, I need to work on that. And as for sane, that's probably best for other people to say, but I can find members of my family who would take the contra on that side almost every day. So I'm still working on it. Okay, well, that's the first time that we've had such an honest admission, and we appreciate it. Well, Rory O'Driscoll, it's always a pleasure. Great speaking to you today. Thanks for being a guest on the SaaS Revolution Show podcast and not being a Debbie Downer. And we'll see you in Dublin, October the 15th and 16th at SaaS Top 19. Thanks very much, Rory O'Driscoll. Look forward to it. Take care. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and you've picked up valuable lessons from Rory. 
see him again at, uh, at Sasbot 19 in Dublin this October, 14th to the 16th. For more information, go to sasbot.com. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.